0: 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the various officials gathered, and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that the king had set up. And they stood before the image that the king had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music. You are to fall down and worship the golden image that the king has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that the king had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews him you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that she, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. The king answered and said to them, Then the king was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against these men. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind these men and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and other garments, and they were thrown into the furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, And the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men fell bound into the burning furnace. Then the king was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then the king came near to the door of the burning fire furnace, and he declared to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then the men came out from the fire. And the various officials gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men, the hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. The king and ant- king answered, and said, "Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies." rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against this god shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted these men in the province of Babylon. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father, it truly is amazing how you deliver your people from trials through trials, and there you are in their midst. I pray that you might give us wisdom and insight as we consider this text. Apply it to our hearts by your Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my best friends, Wes, in junior high and in high school was born with a defect where uh, his right arm was missing from just below the elbow downwards. Uh, but nevertheless, Wes and I played football together in junior high. We swam together. We played lacrosse together in high school. Wes was an amazing athlete, incredibly strong. In high school, he could bench press over 300 pounds with his left arm and the bar resting on what he referred to as his nub. But Wes was also incredibly talented in another way. This boy could sing. By our senior year of high school, he would become the number one male vocalist in all Texas high schools. He's now a professional opera singer living in Houston with his wife and children. When I became a Christian my junior year of high school, I wanted Wes and other friends to know what I knew and come to know the Lord. I convinced several of them to join a group of us at a church that was having revival meetings throughout uh, a week. And during one of those meetings, Wes did respond to an invitation and came down the front to pray. But I'm afraid that uh, his seed fell on rocky soil. It did not appear to stick. And sometime later, some Christians were passing through his neighborhood. And they struck up a conversation with Wes and tried to convince him that God really wanted him to have two full, healthy arms and hands. And they told him that if he believed and prayed hard enough, God would give him his right Arm. Wes confided in me sometime later that he tried for many days, struggling with doubts over what these Christians had promised him, despair over the prospect that his faith was not strong enough, and disillusionment in the end over the message of these so-called faith healers. Wes walked away from the Christian faith and still wanders to this day. The same issues of doubt, despair, and disillusionment afflict many who call upon the name of Christ during seasons of walking through various fiery trials. Where is God? When people cry out to him to deliver them from the pit, Well, as our story demonstrates, God is where he always is, in the midst of our afflictions. He is there in our midst. God is with us in the fire. And tonight, we want to consider this text by looking at the nature of this crisis, response to the crisis, and the ultimate results, according to God's redeeming purposes. Well, the crisis of the situation afflicting these Hebrew men is essentially caused by sin and idolatry and rebellion, but it's not theirs. Yes, Israel as a people group were in Babylon as a consequence of the nation's sin and idolatry. But this present crisis is rooted in the king of Babylon's idolatrous obsession for power that results in or demonstrates itself in false worship and forced worship. The text says that King Nebuchadnezzar builds a towering image that's 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. In the previous chapter, we see that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed this dream of a massive statue with its head made of gold, which was interpreted by Daniel to be uh, representing the king and his empire. And the rest of the body of the statue was made up of lesser materials representing lesser empires that would come after Babylon had fallen. Many commentators suppose that the king was seeking to counter this dream by creating an image made entirely of gold, representing his reign and his glory that he hoped would last forever. Apparently, the expression of faith that we find in Daniel 2, when Nebuchadnezzar declares that Daniel's God is the God of gods, and the Lord of kings, is short-lived. Repeated throughout our narrative this is this phrase that says, that the image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. And we find this throughout the narrative to, give a, to leave us with no doubt about the nature of his obsession with power. That he is the true power behind this false god. Like Jeroboam, who set up the golden calves pulling no- northern tribes of Israel away from worship in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So Nebuchadnezzar sets up a false god for his people to worship so that he can control them. The fact that this this image is set up on the plains of Babylon echoes back even earlier to the Tower of Babel account. Like his forefathers, Nebuchadnezzar seeks his own glory, a name for himself to unify his people under his rule. Inevitably, false worship leads to forced worship. Many of us are familiar with the nature and policy of North Korea that plasters the images of its supreme leader, the former leader, King Jong-il, the savior of the people, whose image is impressed upon its people as the only hope and the only one worthy of their worship and allegiance on some similar kind of policy. Nebuchadnezzar orders all the officials of his realm to come to a dedication ceremony where all the people of all the nations will be ordered to worship, to bow down and serve this God when they hear the music playing. This is not optional. Resistance is futile. Those who refuse to comply, will be cast into a burning, fiery furnace to their death. You know, I suppose that Nebuchadnezzar and his advisors thought that they were quite reasonable. They probably thought of themselves as very tolerant. They were not requiring anybody to give up their religion or abandon their beliefs. They just needed to subject those under their allegiance to the empire. They were free to worship any God as long as it was second to the state. You can practice whatever you want personally. As long as you pay in and participate to health care coverage that provides services that are against God's word. You can believe whatever you want about science human nature, as long as you don't challenge or criticize the education establishment's consensus on human origins or the government's mandate regarding alternative marriage. My alma mater, Vanderbilt University, a few years ago decided to tighten its policy regarding student groups, and their acceptance of leadership, they determined that religious groups in in particular were not allowed to require its leaders to sign a statement of faith. As a result, there was an exodus of several evangelical campus ministries that felt like they could not comply with this policy. Only groups like RUF, our own, our own denominational ministry, and the Baptist Student Union, both of which that have ordained campus ministers and do not rely upon student leaders like some of these other ministries, only such organizations were able to comply with the policy. You can do whatever you want, as long as it conforms to our policies, beliefs, and morality. People in power are used to having their way and forcing those under them to bow down to their gods. Government will not tolerate noncompliance with its own unjust and immoral policies. An, alcohol, an alcoholic parent will force his or her family members to tolerate his or her escape mechanism. Parents will insist that children simply endure and put into practice their own broken-down practices of put-downs, disrespect, and non-conflict resolution. Churches may require its congregations to bow down to tradition, sacred cows, while turning a blind eye to abuses of Power. Bosses may require employees to put up with their fits of rage and giving people a dressing down in front of their co-workers. Those who are vulnerable are punished by those who are in power when they refuse to serve their false gods. And false gods are brutal. They demand To be served, they require sacrifice. And false worship will only be destroyed by repentance and by returning to the true worship of the living God. In verses 8 through 18, the crisis facing these Hebrew men rises to climax as these men are accused and then challenged by the king himself and when they respond with defiance of their own. In verse 8, it says that these Chaldeans maliciously accused these Jewish men. Perhaps they were jealous, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had already been promoted twice to higher positions of office. We are not told why Daniel was not included in this accusation. Perhaps he was protected by distance or by his position of authority. These accusers approach the king, reminding him of the nature of this decree, the consequences of noncompliance, and then proceed to accuse the Jews. First, of ingratitude, for they have been, giving, been given wonderful high positions of authority. Of disrespect and insubordination, because they pay no attention to the king. And thirdly, impiety, because they refuse to serve the king's gods and will not worship his golden image. God's people throughout the ages have suffered similar accusations under the rule of tyrants. Tyrants are obsessed with a constant need for gratitude, respect, and submission. Their ego is like helium balloons that slowly leak then pop at the prick of a needle. Well, these advisors know their king well. They understand. They know how to push his buttons. It makes you wonder who was really in charge. And predictably, King Nebuchadnezzar flies off the handle into a rage and commands these Hebrew men to appear before him. They are being accused of defying authority, of undermining national unity. But the king presents himself calm, self-controlled, and reasonable, giving these men a fair opportunity to hear their accusations and to respond appropriately. These men respond with bold yet humble defiance in verses 16 through 18. It's one of the most courageous displays of faith in all of Scripture. These men begin by saying to the king, we have no need to answer you. They are not going to deny the charges. They are not going to be defensive. They fully understand the terms and are prepared to face the consequences for their actions. In verses 17 through 18, we see an expression of deep faith in God's sovereign grace and goodness. In response to what Nebuchadnezzar said in verse 15 when he asked, And who, which God will deliver you from my hand? These men boldly declared that their God is fully capable to deliver them from his hand. The God who made the world, who defeated the mighty Egyptians, who routed the Philistine armies, who raises up and brings down rulers of every nation. Is able to deliver them from the king's hand. And then at the end of verse 17, they're even more bold when they say, He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And verse 18 says, And even if not, we refuse to serve your gods or worship your golden image. People have questioned these verses is the faith of these men wavering between confidence and uncertainty. Even one commentator offers this alternative translation of these verses when he writes, If the God whom we serve is willing to save us, then he will do so. But even if he does not choose to do so, we still will not serve your gods or bow down to the image you have made. This scholar says that the word for able... It can also be translated willing to help nuance and understand this text. However, I prefer an interpretation of verses 17 and 18 that recognizes a real balance in these men's response. It's both confidence with humility. These men are confident in their God. Their God who can deliver them. These men believe that that God can. They believe that they have God's favor who is fully willing to save them and deliver them from the fiery furnace. And yet these men also humbly accept that their God may choose not to deliver them from the flames according to his own wise and good counsel of his will. Their confidence is in God not in their own limited understanding of what God may choose to do. They know that God is not obligated to operate according to their plans. These men defy King Nebuchadnezzar because God is God. They will serve God. Whether he conforms to their wisdom or not. You see, these Hebrew brothers do not test or tempt God. They do not demand God to act according to their own desires. They do not place God to the test. They do not put an ultimatum before him. You know, it's dangerous for us to assume that God must bless us. And that somehow we must believe that he will bless us and not doubt but bless us according to what we request. You know, people will say that you must claim God's blessing and have full assurance that you will receive it. But we know there are people, very godly people, even people in the Bible, who prayed for things but but did not get the answer that they sought. We see this with Abraham, Joseph, David, even the Lord Jesus himself. If you say, if you say about God that I know God that you will answer me, you can't not answer me. In truth you are trusting in your own wisdom. And if you say that you prayed for something and God lets you down. You be, you merely betray that your hope was in your own agenda, and that God was merely the means of fulfilling your plans and purposes. As Tim Keller has written, it's a matter of trusting God plus my plans for my life. These three Hebrew believers are ready, and are ready. For deliverance or death. Because they believe that either way, God will be glorified. God will deliver them from the king's hand. Either from death or through death. Their joy and their honor is to please God. Not to use God to get what they wanted. And as a result, these men are fearless can face anything. Dear Christian neighbors of ours have one child born to them, and then when they were told by medical professionals that they could have no more children, proceeded to begin foster care and have since adopted a child and hope to adopt more. And so it was to an utter surprise when months ago they learned that the wife was expecting And my wife went over and wept for joy with them. And then just this week, an ultrasound has revealed a severe defect in the little baby boy's heart and lungs that may prove fatal. My wife was there once again weeping in sorrow with them. It just doesn't seem right. It seems set up. This godly couple who so wants children and is so capable to raise them well while many others neglect their children and subject them to the horrors of a broken foster care system. How do you pray in such a situation? Do you pray for a miracle? Do you pray for God to heal? Do, does, it, does it mean I'm not exercising faith if I don't pray for healing? Do we pray for what we want? Do we submit to God's will irregardless? I suggest that we follow the example of these three Hebrew brothers who demonstrate a bold confidence, but also a deep humility. They fully trust God's ways. They do not place demands for God to deliver them according to their designs. We believe in a God who does miracles. Jesus did amazing things, healed many people, and raised several people back from the grave. But you know, every single one of those people died again. They had to face death twice. And even those who were healed of their afflictions went on to suffer in other ways throughout the rest of their lives. Yes, we do pray that God would deliver us from affliction and suffering, but we also pray and trust that he will give us the grace to deliver us through those afflictions and glorify him in our faith. Can you join these Brothers, In joyful confidence, trusting God, even if he doesn't deliver from the fire. Even if he doesn't heal the cancer. Even if he doesn't lift the depression. Even if he doesn't provide the visa. Even if he doesn't bring back the child. There's all manner of trials and afflictions God's people will suffer. And yes, we pray earnestly. We pray earnestly. We reveal our heart. We go boldly to the throne of grace. But we humbly submit ourselves to a God who is wise and good and loving and has a perfect will that is beyond our wildest imaginations. With these brothers, we tell the world, we will not serve your gods. And with Job, we can say, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Well, in response to these brothers' defiance, Nebuchadnezzar once again flies into a fury and orders that this furnace be heated seven times hotter. We had a Chevy Venture years ago that had a Cooling system problem. And um, apparently the coolant would cause a leak in the gasket. And the engine would overheat. And we had to replace the head gasket. That's a very costly repair with lots of labor. Well, I think it's safe to say that Nebuchadnezzar blew a gasket. He overheated. And it cost him. His servants in their haste, tying up the three Hebrew men, throw them into the fire, and consequently several of the servants die because the heat, the excessive heat, and we can imagine the fire blazing out of control. It's like a grill burning with grease and fat drippings, causing the fire to flame out of control, consuming burgers and dogs unintentionally. It's ironic that those who obeyed the king died, For those who defied him lived. In verse 24, the king is astonished to see not burnt ash of what used to be men, but four men walking in the fire, and one with the appearance as a son of the gods, a supernatural being. In his amazement, the king calls these men and his officials gather around to investigate these men who show no signs of being burnt or suffering harm of any kind. And in response, the king blesses God, who sent his angel to deliver them. Unlike Pharaoh, and his stubbornness resisted God's will, this king commends these men for trusting their God, for setting aside the king's command, for yielding their bodies to the flame to not serve or worship any other God but their God. This king does humble himself, at least for a time, acknowledging that the Lord is God. And he issues a decree that anyone who speaks against this God, this God who delivers from the fire, shall be thrown into the flames. And once again, these Hebrew believers are promoted in the kingdom. For generations, believers have read this passage and can say with much confidence that this fourth man, this son of the gods, was none other than none other than the Son of God, a pre-incarnate appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who enters into the fiery furnace of affliction, the one who spoke out of the burning bush, is the one who stands in the fiery furnace the one who protects his people from the petty wrath of a human king. God's people. When they walk through the fire, they shall not be burned because the Son of God walks with them. Like these three men, Jesus was condemned to a painful death. Under the rule of a totalitarian regime, Jesus entered into the fiery furnace so that you and I may not suffer the fires of hell for eternity. Jesus walked through the fires of affliction for 30 years and in the end was consumed by God's wrath on the cross. Jesus quenched the flame, put the fire out so that the danger to God's people might be removed and we could enter into his fellowship forever. For those of us who are in Christ, suffering relates to character the way fire relates to gold. Its purpose is to burn up the impurities, to strengthen our faith that we might be less attached to the things of this world, demonstrate better compassion towards others, might grow more resilient in the midst of difficulties, None of these things are achievable without suffering. Hymn writer John Rippon says it well, in how firm a foundation when he writes When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flames shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Yes, suffering is God's way of refining his people, of purifying their faith. And there are some things that God's people will suffer that go beyond our own imaginations of how could good possibly come out of such affliction. There are many examples, but I share one, whereby we see amazing fruit in the midst of terrible suffering. It's written that at the end of World War II when the Allied Liberators came to Ravensbrück, the Nazi prison camp for women, the same camp where Corrie ten Boom and her sister were taken. This prayer was found on a scrap of paper in the pocket of an unknown child. O Lord... Remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. But do not remember all the suffering they have inflicted on us. Instead, remember the fruits we have borne because of the suffering. Our fellowship, our loyalty to one another, our humility, our courage, our generosity. The greatness of heart that has grown from this trouble. When our persecutors come to be judged by you, let all these fruits that we have borne be their forgiveness. This is the testimony of those who have suffered in the crucible, oftentimes in the literal fires of affliction. God was with them. And God brought them through the hour of their greatest grief. Our suffering is redeemed by God. When we trust and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we believe by faith that he is with us, in the midst of the fire, walk with him. Trust in him. Embrace the gospel of God's free grace, as you walk through the fires. God never did give my friend Wes his right arm, but God has given us his right arm. God has given us his right hand man in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who suffered and died in our place and truly walks with us in the fire. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you that we are not alone, that we do not suffer afflictions without your comfort and your presence. Be with your people. Guide us and sustain us. May we be a people who demonstrate faith and courage, even as we cry out to you to deliver us from our afflictions and through them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.